Morning, everyone. I'm just going to invite uh, Dr. Darren Lockett up here in a second after the scripture reader. Um, he's a guest preacher that he's uh, and he's been here for two weekends now. Last week he preached for us and he's been around and a lot of you got to know him over the week as we had meals together and as he taught classes for us. He's been very faithful and um, getting to know us and teaching us the gospel and the deep things of God through his word. Dr. Darren Lockett is a professor of New Testament at Biola University. He's also a ruling elder at the Presbyterian Church of America, Orange County. And um, he's married to Nicole. He has three kids, Aiden, Evan, and Maddie. Um, let me pray for him before our scripture reader comes up. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word. Um, we would have never known you if you had not revealed yourself to us, if you had not condescended, accommodated yourself to our needs into human language, into human form in Christ Jesus, Father. So help us now not take this for granted. Help us now to see the value and the beauty of your word through the preaching of your word and through the reading of your word. Um, help us be attentive and show us Christ Jesus and help us worship you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> this is the word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Thus says the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to be here again with you this morning. Every one of us might have had a similar experience as toddlers. We begin to realize very soon a sense of fairness. Somebody steals the toy you're playing with and you think, wait a second, that's not fair. I can punch you in the nose and grab it back, right? As adults, we know that life is not fair. We, we know that uh, things will go wrong. They won't go just as we have planned. Yet, we prove to fight back whenever something happens to us that is not fair. 
especially when we feel like we are innocent victims. We deserve to be treated fairly, and therefore we push back when life is not fair. If we're innocent, we feel like we deserve to be treated fairly. So we know life is not fair, so what do we do when life isn't fair? How do you respond when you suffer innocently? Now, I I worry a bit here because I think there might be a misperception of what the Christian life is like or what Christianity is all about. Perhaps the misperception comes from culture, but it also comes from this innate sense of entitlement uh, to fairness. Perhaps Christianity is misrepresented uh, in that when we think uh, we become, when we become Christians, um, that this will actually somehow make us healthy, it will lead to wealth, uh, it'll lead to a more positive attitude, perhaps success, and at least happiness. But this might be more about the prosperity gospel than the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But, this, but these notions, these notions um, lurk deeply inside even thoughtful Christians. We subtly think that if I devote my life to God, if I sacrifice my own personal desires, if I commit to living for God, then he owes me. If I sacrifice this, he'll give me a beautiful spouse. If I devote my life in this way, my children will grow up and obey. Yeah, no, don't, don't, don't expect that. I speak from experience. These expectations are, are coming from this deep sense of an entitlement to be treated fair, to be understood when I say something, when my, uh, the, the, the desire to have my motives not be questioned. And, and in this mindset, and maybe in this misperception of Christianity, when we suffer, this is actually a sign of God's displeasure, a sign uh, of, of sin or compromise in my life. So, so suffering is seen as when the Christian life is going wrong. But that way of thinking actually is manipulative, I think. It's an attempt to be sovereign over my own life. It's actually, at bottom, an attempt to control God. If I'm moral and if I do the right things, then God has to do a certain set of things for me. This is the misperception of Christianity that I'm worried about. And in that mindset, suffering then is like the last thing that should happen in our lives. And if I'm suffering, I must be doing Christianity in the wrong way. Peter, in this passage is talking about not just suffering, but a very specific kind of suffering, innocent suffering. What about about when life is not fair? What what about when we experience innocent suffering? Here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through 3.12, it's even longer than just the passage we're looking at today. This entire section, Peter gives examples of social relationships that are not erased when someone becomes a Christian. Last week, we looked at Peter's first example, the example of Christians as they engage with emperors or governors. It's Christians' relationship with with government. When someone becomes a Christian, they don't cease to be a part of society. They don't cease to give obedience to the local politicians. Peter goes on to describe, in the passage we're going to think about today, two more social relationships that are not erased when someone becomes a Christian. 
These relationships, of course, are the relationship that slaves have with their masters and the relationship that wives have with their husbands. Now, I mentioned last week, all through this passage, the verb submit is a key verb. All Christians are called to submit to the governing authorities. Slaves are called to submit to their masters. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. So the, the word, the verb submit, holds this entire section together. Um, and it's the, the requirement or um, for Christians to live out their new identity in Christ, uh, what they do is they turn an outward facing, they, they're submitting themselves to these, um, to these structures in society. And this is what God is calling for us to do as we, as we put on display our new identity in Christ to the world around us. So my first point is going to take a little while because I'm going to talk about wives and slaves. And I need to describe some of the ancient world and, and how Peter is thinking about wives and slaves. So that's going to take uh, a bit of time. And then toward the end of the sermon, I'll get to my other two points, which will lead us to the gospel. So first point, new identity in Christ does not mean that previous social relationships are erased even if they lead to innocent suffering. The fact that I have become a Christian does not erase these previous social relationships, even if, or I might even say, because they lead to innocent suffering. Now, this is going to be strange, and so I have to take time thinking about how, what, it is, what it is that Peter is arguing here. When somebody becomes a Christian, when somebody receives new identity in Christ, Peter, uh, Peter has been talking about this new identity in the first half of his letter the new theological identity that his readers have received from their new life in Christ. Even though Peter's readers, we, have received this new identity in Christ, there's a change in our identity, there's a change in our life, Peter argues that these old social relationships characterized by our life before conversion, those relationships are still a part of our lives. They should be maintained. Peter gives the prime example of slaves and wives. Now, I can already start to guess what's going on in, in your mind. Now, one of those relationships seems obvious. If, if, if a wife becomes a Christian, then it, it sounds reasonable that she should stay in the marriage that she was found in, in Christ. And she, could, she should continue to be a part of that marriage relationship. That sounds reasonable. However, what's more difficult here is that Peter is also um, instructing slaves who become Christians in the midst of their slavery to remain submitted to their masters. Now, perhaps this is troubling. Perhaps this raises questions because it sounds like the Bible is tacitly endorsing slavery. Yet, it gets worse because Peter doesn't only encourage slaves to submit to their Christian masters, Peter is specific about instructing slaves to be submitted not just to good masters, but even masters who are cruel, masters who persecute their slaves for doing good. So submission not just to a master, but a wicked master. Uh, Beyond that, Peter is asking or instructing Christian wives now to remain submitted to their husbands, but did you catch in the passage? It's not just Christian husbands, 
But it's even non-believing husbands, non-Christian husbands, that Peter is instructing wives to remain submitted to. And if all of that is not difficult enough, Peter in this passage draws a line connecting slaves to wives. There is something very important that links these two groups of people inside the church together, and it's the issue of innocent suffering. Now, I'm going to try to say all the way through the sermon that the Bible is not endorsing slavery, just like the Bible is not endorsing uh, a Christian young person to go find a non-Christian to marry. The Bible is not promoting either of those situations. However, um, in an era of the first century, when the gospel is being preached for the first time, it's, it's being heard by all kinds of people, not just free Roman citizens, not just Jewish people who have grown up in Palestine, but an Egyptian slave in Rome, um, a, a wife who is from uh, Thrace or something like that, right? and, and she's been, uh, her people have been conquered, and now she's in Rome, and she's been married off to a Roman man, and she hears the gospel, and her life has changed. What does she do? That the gospel is being preached in contexts all over the Roman Empire, and Peter is addressing these less-than-ideal situations. How do we put our Christian identity on display in a, in a broken world for the sake of mission, for the sake of witness? So the title of my sermon is The Witness of Innocent Suffering. That's, that's where we're headed the whole time. So the question here, though, that we're, that we're thinking about with slaves and wives is why, why, after encouraging slaves and wives about their new identity in Christ, why would Peter instruct them to submit to their old social relationships in which they're vulnerable, in which they are suffering? The answer, in a word, is the gospel. The only way to make sense of innocent suffering in our lives or in the world is what we'll see by the end of the passage, that Jesus himself is the supreme innocent sufferer. And is in his innocent suffering, we can make sense of the innocent suffering we might experience in our lives. And we can see the purpose for it. But before we get to those last two points, we need to think carefully about the instructions Peter gives to slaves um, and to wives. Now, as we begin to think about slaves and wives, there are two issues of historical and literary context. Hang with me for just a second. These two uh, issues need to be talked about. First, I have it on the slide. Um, Peter links wives and slaves. I hope maybe, yeah, this next slide. In the passage itself, Peter is indicating to us some connections. Now, what you see on the slide here is something in uh, biblical studies, we call this a chiasm. It is a device to help readers understand what the author is communicating. When you're reading a book, you are looking for paragraphs, right? And when the words are indented, you can tell, oh, this is the beginning of a new paragraph. And when you see the paragraph, you know this is a unit of thought. I should read this paragraph together. Make sense? In ancient manuscripts written in Greek, there are no paragraphs. Instead, there are devices like what you see in front of you, a chiasm. Do you see how um, the first command that everyone, all Christians, must submit to the government, it is mirrored by the last command, instructions for everyone? Do you see the first and the last are mirror images of each other? Yes or no? Yes, thank you. Uh, and then the next level in, you see 
instructions for slaves and instructions for wives, those two are paralleled to each other. And then far left, what is sticking out all by itself? Jesus. So this gives us an indication of how Peter is arguing. It's the point that he's making. He's driving us to see the supreme example of innocent suffering as Jesus Christ. But as on the way to seeing Christ, he is helping us see that there are two groups of people in his Christian community who are associated together, wives and slaves, but they are also um, paired very near to Jesus. What, what Peter is saying here is that the suffering of slaves and the suffering of wives are very similar to the kind of innocent suffering that Jesus experienced. But here, the point I'm wanting to make through the structure of the passage is that Peter is linking wives and slaves together. He tells them both to submit. Um, he tells them both that their submission and innocent suffering uh, is pleasing and finds favor with God. Um, and they are both given motivation to this kind of submission. So there are all kinds of parallels between wives and slaves. So that's why we're looking at them together. That's the, that's the first uh, bit of context. The second bit of context that's important for us is to notice that um, Peter is using something called a household code. A household code here in, second, uh, in First Peter chapter 2. A household code is what it sounds like. It is a list of instructions and encouragements to different people inside the household. And household codes were very common in um, ancient Greco-Roman writings. So we have household codes that come from Aristotle, from Plato, um, other moral uh, philosophers in the ancient world. The Greeks and the Romans were very interested in the right order of the house because they viewed the home as a microcosm of society in general. And then a city is a microcosm of the universe. So if the home is ordered well, the city will be ordered well, and the city will bear the order uh, of the universe. That's kind of Greco-Roman thinking. But this is also similar to Christian thinking. Um, God has established the family. He has created it to be ordered in a certain way. And the, the well-run household will affect and influence the city. One of, one of the best ways to do evangelism is to plant churches. Uh, one of the best ways to ensure healthy churches is that homes are full of gospel between parents and children and whoever else is living in the home. So as goes the, the, the house, so goes, so goes the city. And here, Peter is using this mm, Greco-Roman custom, this household code, and he's using it to, to communicate to his Christian audience that as we receive our new identity from Christ, we need to live that identity out in our homes. And as we live that identity out in our homes, even when our homes are broken, that will begin to be a witness to our society. Here, Peter affirms some Greco-Roman social uh, conventions, but he doesn't endorse all of them. Here, here is the gist of, of what Peter is doing and why he uses this household code. He uses this household code in order to encourage brand new Christians to continue living their lives in the, in the world um, where non-Christians are watching them, even submitting to the difficult, broken structures in the world around us, one, for the sake of witness 
to put on display the identity of Jesus, to put on display the sufferings of Jesus so that others might see and hear. But we might be worried about that because the Bible then is saying slaves should go back into slavery and submit to slavery. I think when Peter is telling slaves to go back into the institution of slavery, it's first to be a witness in their suffering. And second, it's in the hope that as a Christian witness is seen inside the social institution of slavery, that that institution itself will finally, ultimately be subverted such that there is a time in which There is no more slavery because the new identity, the new thing that God is doing in the lives of his people is so compelling that society begins to change slowly. But here, when Peter is writing in the first century, slavery is a reality. It's not a social institution that's going anywhere anytime soon. And so this is hard for us. Why would would Peter do that? Why would God allow that? It's the redemptive end game. (laughs) It's the goal of the gospel getting out, and finally transforming culture. So this is the significance of Peter using this household code in how he exhorts his Christian listeners. Look with me in the text. Now let's look at slaves. Uh, look back at the passage if you have it in your handout uh, or if you have your Bible. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For... It brings favor if, because of consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you do wrong, you are beaten and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, it brings favor with God. It's very significant that Peter directly addresses slaves. This is... This is where Peter breaks with an ancient Greco-Roman household code. Aristotle never addressed a slave. Here, Peter directly addresses the slave. And by the way, notice no masters are mentioned here. Peter bypasses the master and goes right to the slave. And he addresses them. And in his direct address to the slaves, we need to observe that he addresses slaves as having moral agency. They are morally responsible for the choice to submit. Their submission is not extracted. Their submission is willingly given. And Peter appeals to the slave as as a respected human being. Uh, Like if we looked at ancient Greco-Roman household codes, slaves are never mentioned, um, addressed directly, but they are talked about. And they're talked about as human chattel. They have no moral agency. They're not actually people. But here... Even in using the household code, we see Peter engaging in culture, but then thwarting or subverting that culture. Slaves, you are human beings too. God cares for you and addresses you and addresses you in a sense that you have moral agency and you can choose to obey. And their submission is not extracted. It's willingly given. What's the reason for their submission? The reason for the slave's submission is not because the master is good and compelling, The master's kind and worthy. In fact, these are masters who aren't worthy to be submitted to. And that's not the point. Fairness is not the point. Peter argues that slaves should should submit uh, even to cruel masters 
Not because the master demands it or extracts it. Uh, uh, not because society expects it. It's a social convention or it's custom. Rather, slaves are to submit because of consciousness of God. Or the ESV reads, being mindful of God. They submit to their masters. It's the slave's reverence and worship of God. That's the motivation for submitting to their masters. And what's the result? The result of the slave's submission is that it brings favor with God. Both in verse 19 and verse 20, uh, Peter repeats that, that the slave's submission brings favor to God. In verse 20, Peter emphasizes that the slave's uh, submission to the master is especially an innocent suffering. Look again at verse 20, for what credit if, uh, is there if when you do wrong, you are beaten? Uh, if you're breaking the law and you suffer for it, okay, that you're not innocently suffering. If you speed down the road and you get a ticket, um, that's on you. That's not the kind of suffering Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about the kind of suffering when you do what's right and then you suffer for it in any way. That particularly brings glory to God. It puts on display the kind of suffering Jesus experienced. That's getting ahead of myself, but that's where Peter is driving. Look at wives now. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is still the same point. Now I'm going to try to draw a connection between slaves and wives. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, notice how Peter is connecting slaves to wives. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure and reverent lives, do not let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothing. By the way, all of those are references to Greco-Roman excess. Women would take strands of gold and weave them into their hair. There are accounts of ancient Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, ancient Roman um, women taking pearls, crushing them, pouring the powder into wine, and drinking the wine. We're talking about incredible wealth and excess. And Peter is saying, wait, 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 your new identity in Christ calls you away from that kind of excess. It calls you to be um, um, moderate, uh, to show moderation in how you dress and how you act. And, and please, like, I, I, don't, I just don't want Pastor Tazar to get questions about, sh- should I braid my hair for church next week? Should I, should I wear that gold necklace? Okay, cultural, cultural context here is like an over-the-top, Kind of thing. And also, it's the wife in a precarious situation. She's married to a non believing husband. So it's her action, it's her demeanor, it's the way she is behaving in the home. She cannot speak the gospel, so she must live it in a compelling way. Um, More to come. Verse 4 But rather, what's inside the heart? The imperishable quality of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is a great worth in God's sight. For in the past, holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Both slaves and wives are called to do good in the context that they find themselves in. And these two passages mirror each other. It's not just that the passage in chapter 3 verse 1 starts in the same way, but just like slaves, Peter directly addresses the wives. Now, in an ancient Greco-Roman household code, wives were addressed. However, they were addressed as being morally inferior to men. A quick quotation 
from Paul Ochtemeyer's commentary on 1 Peter. This is what it was like to be a woman in the first century in Greco-Roman context. Because the woman lacked the capacity for reason that the male had, she was ruled by her emotions. She was given to poor judgment, to immorality, to intemperance. She was untrustworthy and contentious. And as a result, it was her place to obey. Women could not vote or hold office. They could not be the legal guardian of their own children. And they were legally dependent upon father or guardian even to leave the home. This is the kind of situation that a Christian woman finds herself in. And Peter addresses the woman directly. Again, addresses them as having moral agency, as having value. I appreciate very much how Tazar began talking about self-worthlessness. Peter is speaking to people who have worth because they're created in the image of God. And they're now enjoying, given the new identity in Christ. And as a person with that new identity, whether slave or wherever part of society you're in, they're, li- they're called to live out this new identity in, uh, in front of a watching world for the sake of witness. And again, wives in this context are addressed um, as, as moral agents at, who willingly give submission. It's not extracted from them. Likewise, as we saw with slaves, the reason for the submission, wives do not submit to their husbands because their husbands are good. In fact, we're, we have the context here where a husband is not a believer. And it's not because of social pressure or custom again, but again, it is the wife's reverence for God. That is her motivation for submitting to her husband, regardless of whether the husband is harsh or kind, Christian or not Christian. It is the new identity in Christ being lived out by the woman in this context. The result of the submission the result of the submission is the same too. Peter argues that submitting to a non-believing husband, quote, is of great worth in God's sight, chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, and at the end of the passage, Peter encourages Christian wives to do what is good and not fear any intimidation. That last phrase suggests to me that the wives are in a precarious situation. Don't fear. Don't fear what you might lose. You, you might ask, well, what, what would the wife have to lose? Why would a wife's conversion provoke antagonism from the non-believing husband? Again, in Greco-Roman context, it was expected that the wife would believe and follow the gods of the husband. And if a wife rejected the household gods, then she is putting her husband uh, out for public shame. Here's a man who can't take care of his own household. He can't even keep his wife worshiping the, the, the gods. So this would bring social shame on the husband. Not only that, but it would be interpreted as rebellion, rebellion against the husband's authority. Therefore, it would be very precarious for for the wife. If she was kicked out of the house, she she can't have a job. Uh, Her kids stay with the man. There's, There's no money that she has. You see the vulnerable situation that the wife is in. Both wives and slaves who convert to Christianity were particularly vulnerable in their social relationships. They, most of all, would be open to suffering and unjust treatment at the hands of their masters and unbelieving husbands. Neither slaves nor wives would have any social or political power or no social status, nothing that could actually protect them from the innocent suffering that they experienced. Again, they are most vulnerable. But despite this, Peter instructs both 
slaves and wives, to submit to these social relationships in which they are found, in which they were before coming to Christ. This for the sake of mission. What makes sense of this innocent suffering? Uh, This brings me to my second point. So here we see the example of Jesus. The second point is this, is that all Christians, not just slaves and wives, we're going to see very quickly that Peter expects slaves and wives to be examples, but examples to the rest of the Christian community, that this is how all of us, this is how all of us are called. The second point here is that all Christians are to follow the example of Christ's innocent suffering. Look now at chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. This is moving backwards a little bit in the passage, but this is the point, uh, remember the far, the far right-hand side, the, the bit in the chiasm that is the most important, the focal point? This is where Jesus is the example of innocent suffering. Look at verse 21. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. I'll read verse 23 here in a moment, but this is kind of ironic. In a Greco-Roman household code, you would actually never hear about suffering. So this is out of place. This is where Peter is really off script, as it were, from the Roman, Greco-Roman household code. Here, Peter talks about Jesus as the quintessential example of innocent suffering. So Peter has a very specific reason for doing this. The social experience of slaves and wives most closely parallel the experience of Jesus. Therefore, Peter puts wives and slaves forth as examples of those who are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. The new identity in Christ is given But a new life in Christ is costly. And wives and slaves are putting on display Christ-likeness in their their position of vulnerability. Again, in verses 21-22 that I just read, it's with the words of Isaiah that Peter argues that Jesus is the most innocent one. Did you hear that? He did not sin. He did not speak any deceitful thing out of his mouth. Mouth. So he is the most innocent one. So if, if you sense some kind of connection with the wives and slaves in this passage, you, you have a sense that your new identity in Christ has cost you something, a relationship in your family, then what Peter is saying is, look to a beautiful Jesus, a Savior, who knows exactly what it's like to struggle and suffer like this. One who knows your pain and actually has been there before you and holds your hand as you walk obediently in the midst of that challenging situation. Christ the Lord is your example. He is the one who is near. The suffering of slaves and wives only makes sense as close approximations as Jesus uh, or close approximations of Jesus' ultimate example of innocent suffering. The innocent suffering of wives and slaves is is made sense of by putting it alongside the innocent suffering that Jesus himself experienced. But not only is Jesus the innocent one, when facing unjust suffering, he did not retaliate. Look at verse 23. Not only was there no deceit in his mouth and he did not sin, but verse 23 says, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not uh, threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
when Jesus was verbally insulted, he patiently bore it, and he did not say anything back. When Jesus suffered, when he was beaten, when he was whipped, he did not fight back. Uh, My profession is New Testament scholarship, so I'm sorry to get Greek and nerdy here for a minute, but the verbs in the passage here are relevant. Uh, Peter has chosen a particular verbal tense in Greek that stresses the ongoing nature of the activity. Jesus continued to be slandered, and he continued never saying anything back. He continued to be beaten again and again, suffering in his body, and he again and again and again took the posture of non-retaliation. Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever had a rumor started about you? Put yourself in these shoes, right? Somebody, somebody starts a rumor about you at work, and it's totally wrong, right? And you, and you start suffering because of this rumor that's circulating, right? People don't want to go out to lunch with you anymore. Or maybe it's a rumor that's circulating in the church, and all of a sudden people know your business, and, and they think that you're a horrible sinner, and, and you feel totally isolated from community, but you feel wronged because it's a rumor. And then one... Dark, foggy, rainy, Jakarta night. No, you're not outside. Where are you? You're in the mall. (laughs) And you run into the person who has started the rumor. And you take them to the back hall and you start beating them, right? Yeah. We want to defend ourselves because we expect to be treated fairly. When somebody spreads slanderous rumors about ourselves, we feel like we are the only ones that will protect our honor, protect a reputation. Oh, brothers and sisters, look at the example of Jesus when he was slandered and wronged, when he was found guilty in a court of law, he did not fight back. What did he do instead? Verse 23 says, instead he entrusted himself to God. In Jesus' example, we see Jesus receiving slander and receiving violence and receiving the beating, and instead of fighting back to destroy violence, he absorbs it. He absorbs violence, and he absorbs slander, and he absorbs the evil of the world. And by absorbing it, he extinguishes it. Death dies on the cross as Jesus dies. And that is more powerful than any social transformation that's more powerful than any change. It's more powerful than any offensive weapon. In the the death of Christ, we see the extinguishing of all human violence and evil and suffering. Here, we, we turn the corner. It's not only that Jesus gives us an example, but point number three, Jesus' innocent suffering uniquely accomplishes redemption and vindication of those who suffer. I can entrust myself to God because he will vindicate me. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, and the Father vindicated Jesus. Jesus now has a name above every name. Jesus has been raised to new life. Though found guilty in the court of human opinion, in God's opinion, Jesus has been glorified. And that is now Christian hope. I can suffer whatever pain. I can suffer whatever sorrow because I'm seeing Jesus, the one who has gone before me. 
Jesus is the one whose innocent suffering uniquely accomplishes redemption and vindication of those who suffer. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is the last point. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you hear the words of Isaiah 53 once again? Peter is, Peter is thinking about Isaiah 53 as how it's describing the sufferings of Christ. Here, Peter shifts from Jesus' example as one to follow to the fact that Jesus is the unique Savior of the world. Peter argues first that Jesus bore our sins so that we might live for righteousness. Peter emphasizes specifically how Jesus has borne our sins in these two phrases, in his body and on the tree. Bearing our sins in his very body, of course, is an explicit reference to Jesus' death and his suffering. And the phrase, on the tree, refers back to Deuteronomy 21, where a person who is hung on a tree bears the curse of God. So not only does Jesus die in his body and bear God's curse on our behalf, but also, continuing to quote Isaiah, Peter says that by his wounds, we are healed. And continuing in this imagery of Isaiah 53, Peter reminds us of our past, that you were once like sheep going astray, but now, but now because of the unique work of Jesus Christ, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This is what Christ has done for us. He has suffered innocently. Therefore, Calvin can say this. It follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back. He was captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve. He was made a curse for our blessing sin offering for our righteousness. He died for our life so that by him, fury is made gentle, wrath is appeased, darkness turned to light, fear reassured, doubt canceled, sadness made merry, division united, rebellion subjected, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, mortality made immortal. Oh, brothers and sisters, even if in submitting to unjust suffering in the social institutions that we find ourselves in a fallen world, even if that leads to death, you shall not die. I don't know if you're a fan of Star Wars, like the real Star Wars, right? The old ones. Never forget when I was a kid, first movie I ever saw in a theater, went to the first Star Wars movie, and I was hooked. I remember the scene where Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi are battling it out across the Death Hanger, or Death Star, across the hangar there in the Death Star. And Luke looks across, right, fearful, thinking, oh no, all is lost. And he's saying, no, right, and Obi-Wan Kenobi are. Of course, Darth Vader is stronger, overpowers Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I love what Obi-Wan Kenobi says next. Now, I know that uh, George Lucas is like a Hindu and he meant something else by this, okay? But as a Christian, I'm listening and Obi-Wan Kenobi says, if you strike me down now, I'll be more powerful than you can ever imagine. Because what I have, you cannot take. I have new life in Christ. I have a new identity. 
I can be courageous because Jesus is the one who has saved me and given me a new name. And even if seemingly I lose all, I can't take what I have. I have new life. And Christ will raise me again in the, in the resurrection. This is the kind of life we have been given in Christ, the new identity that we are to live out among a watching world. The sufferings of Christ are not only our means by which we ourselves are rescued from our sin, but when extended through the life of God's people, they are also the means by which the world itself is brought to new life in Christ. This is why we're called to innocent suffering. It's for the sake of the watching world. It's for the sake of the city on display in Jakarta. And you are comforted in your suffering because Christ is with you. But your suffering is accomplishing something much more than just your happiness. In Christ, it's accomplishing a witness. And of course, in Christ, we see the most powerful witness of innocent suffering. Innocent suffering that has changed us and we believe will change our city and change the world. This is what we're called to in Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us hear your word today. Lord, it is difficult to hear a word that calls us to suffering that seems senseless and difficult. Oh, Lord, but help us to cling to Christ, to see in him our beautiful Savior who has suffered before us and in our suffering makes sense of what's happening because we see your plan of redemption. And oh, the sweetness of Christ that is not only our present comfort, but our future confidence. Oh, God, may we be your people here in this place, filled with your spirit and power to put on display a beautiful Christ to all who are watching. Oh, Lord, do this in our lives. Help us to give you great glory. Come and renew our city and our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.